Yeah, it's so good to see you guys. Yeah. Good morning to you guys who are watching on stream. Excited that you could join us. You know, um, I realized it's been a year and a half since I've spoken live. And as I was preparing these slides, I was preparing the notes and everything, I realized, you know, usually when you, like, if you write like, two pages of notes, like, oh, that's about 15 minutes, right? I totally lost concept of how long my notes, you know, like what it means in time. So if it goes really long, I have a timer here that is not working right now. But <laughs> if I start seeing you guys getting restless, then I'll wrap it up. So don't worry. But hopefully, my wife, I went over my notes with my wife yesterday. And she's like, cut that out, cut that out. It's too long. And so hopefully, it won't be too long today. Anyways, if you've been catching us online, uh, Westlight Live, then you'll know that last week, you know, we've been going over through the book of Acts. Last week, we went through four chapters of the book of Acts. And you're probably thinking, at this rate, we'll finish the whole book in about a month. And, okay, let me just be clear about what happened last week. Peter, who's one of the main characters of the book of Acts, he repeated the same sermon four times. And I was just pointing out that in these four sermons, like, here are the patterns. These are, here are the things that he talked about. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to go back to chapter 2. Yeah, you thought we were in chapters 5 or 6 today, but we're going back to chapter 2 because in between those sermons, right, those four sermons, he has, like, there's some really good information in between them. So in case you're getting like, oh, yeah, we're going to finish this in a month. No, we're still going to take the whole year, maybe even longer to get through the book of Acts. So let's start today. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. Let's see. There we go. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Okay, and so like I said, sermon, event, sermon, event, sermon, event, and so forth. And this is the first event that's recorded for us in between uh, those sermons. Now, the person who wrote this, his name is Luke. He also wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. Luke is recording for us what he saw. Okay, so what he's about to say right now is not uh, a prescription of what a church ought to be. This is a description. He saw it, and he's like, I got to write this down. Okay, so the thing that he's going to share with us right now, okay, is going to answer this question, which is this. There we go. What was the standout feature of the first church? The church started 2,000 years ago. So if you're wondering, like, you know, for some of you, you feel like this is the first service we've ever had. It feels like it, right? But just imagine, what did it feel like to be at the very first church service. I mean, Luke is there. He's writing things down. He's watching everybody. He's like, okay, well, they did this, this, this. And I'm sure they did like a ton of things. I'm sure they had like a, a worship leader with a cool hat and everything. Like, I'm sure all that stuff happened. But when Luke jotted things down, he didn't write that down. Like, when you think of church, what do you think about? Some of you might think, oh, like a worship team, a preacher, wearing plaid, you know, <laughs> I don't know, right? Um, for those of you who come from more of a traditional uh, church setting, you might think like church bells, pews, um, stained glass windows, mosaics. And some of you might even think about, oh, like the Old and New Testament, the Bible. The Bible was preached, right? And yes, the Bible was probably talked about in the first century church in the first gathering, but it's not recorded for us. The very first service that they talked about that, that is recorded for us, Luke gives us a list of four things that he saw. Four things, that's it. And all the things we just listed right now, like the preacher, worship leader, none of those things are listed. So Luke is like, this is cool. This new thing called the church is starting. I think it has a good run, and 2,000 years later, we're still here, so that's good, right? But have you ever wondered, what are the four things that Luke ever was like, this is so cool. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows about it. This is what it is. So let's look at the first verse, verse 42. They, that's the church, the first set of Christians, devoted themselves to, and the word devoted right there, by the way, the New Testament's written in Greek, 
you're not, you don't have to learn Greek. There's one word you have to learn today, but the word devoted in its literal, in its original language means to make a habit of. Like, if I do this enough, it'll become a routine. If I do this enough, it'll become a part of who I am. So Luke is telling us, here are some things that they did that's going to make us feel like, yes, we want, we, this is so good that I want to make it a part of me, who I am. So I'm going to do it over and over and over again. He recorded four things for us, and the next part of this verse, it says the four things. The apostles' teachings, we'll go over each one later, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Apostles' teachings, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So we'll list it out in the next slide so you can see it right here. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And like I said, this list was composed 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, and it was written in Greek. And these are the words that Luke used. Now, here's the interesting thing. In 2,000 years and across the many cultures between there and here, there's been a lot of changes in the way we use language. What was used back then, the word still exists today, but may not mean the same thing. And that is exactly what happened here. Because these four words, while you might think you know what these words mean, if you look at the culture 2,000 years ago, it's a little different. In some cases, very different. So for example, the first one, which is the apostles' teachings. You might think, oh, they must have had a Bible study. Maybe he was teaching the scriptures, right? And that might be true, but what Luke records for us is not specifically, he was specifically talking about something else. And we're not going to spend too much time on this, but the first thing, the apostles' teaching is actually, they were talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're talking about the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're thinking things like, dude, if, if God, Almighty God, the most powerful being in the entire universe, became a human being, becoming mortal, okay, and not just a human being, but not like, you know, he didn't come down as a king, he came down as a peasant, you know, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, and he was willing to lay his precious life down for us. What does that mean to us? And if we're creating the image of God, are we supposed to do the same thing? Like, are we supposed to be people who treat others with that much respect that we're willing to put aside our privileges so that we could go and serve the people around us? Is that, you know, like, this is what they would talk about. What are the implications of the fact that Jesus, God, came down as a human being and died for us, right? And for other people, they're talking about the resurrection. If the God that was, you know, the creator of the universe is killed but came back to life three days later, does that mean, and they would talk about the implications, does that mean that we shouldn't be afraid of death anymore? Like, these are the things they talked about. What are the implications of the death and resurrection? And then the next one is fellowship, but we'll come back to that. The third thing, breaking of bread. Breaking of bread, I call it tearing down, oh, tearing down walls. Tearing down walls. Well, this, is what, this is what that means. The most intimate act they could do in the first century was eating together. You would not eat together with random people. You will only invite the people who are closest to you to your dinner table. And back then, the dinner table in the Hebrew literally meant altar. I mean, it was that sacred. Okay, so people will gather around the table and they'll break bread to, with each other. Okay, if you read the descriptions of the first century church, you'll discover that people who should not have been together are actually breaking bread together. We have people of different races. We have masters and slaves, Romans, and, you know, and, and Gentiles and Jews. They're all around the table, and it, that shouldn't work. On paper, it shouldn't work, but for some reason, it did, right? So they were breaking down walls and barriers. They were tearing down walls. And then finally, prayer. Now, you might think prayer is like, oh, Lord Jesus, do this, you know, right? But in those days, they shared a prayer request together. They prayed together, and because of that, they were praying for the common goal. 
God, we pray that there would be more heaven on earth. We pray that there would be, you know, that the people who are poor would be taken care of. We pray that so-and-so who is sick, that you would heal them. Everybody had the same goal. They weren't like, Lord, would you help my favorite basketball team win? They're like, no, 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 no. Help my basketball team win. Or, you know, like, Lord, we pray that the USA will get gold medals. And they're like, no, no, no. I want this other country to, you know, right? They weren't competing against each other on prayer requests. What they were actually doing was they were praying for the same things. And so in this first church, Luke is writing it down. He's like, wow, they're talking about the death and resurrection. That's cool. Okay, what else? Oh, um, wow, they're, the way that they're breaking bravely people they're not supposed to, they're tearing down walls. This is great. Oh, wow, look at the way they pray. They're praying for the same thing. Oh, they're common goals. This is unheard of. This is revolutionary back then. But then scholars look at this list and they're like, well, there has to be a common thread. Like these four things, are they somehow related to each other? And upon looking at it, they discover that fellowship is the, one, is, is the one thing right here. Fellowship is the one thing, it's like the glue. Oh, next slide. It's the, one, it's the one thing that kept all these four things together. Now, Luke recognized fellowship as one of the most standout feature of the first century church. Now, I didn't say he saw it as the most important. Okay, it might not be the most important thing of the church. It could be. I don't know, right? But the way that Luke talks about fellowship it shows that he says, no, this is the standout feature. This is the thing that really stood out to me. So what does fellowship mean in the original language 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe? Well, this is what we're going to learn Greek today. The word fellowship in the Greek looks like this. Thank you. I look smart when I use Greek. You know, so <laughs> and this word right here is pronounced, next slide, koinonia. Now let's hear you say koinonia. You see, I can't do this online. Now I get feedback. This is good. You, you could say it at home, too, if you want. But you know, koinonia. Okay. Koinonia, and a lot of time when we Christians use the word fellowship, we think of things like, oh, yeah, today I went to get coffee with Daniel. We were fellowshipping. Or, hey, we went to the movies together. We were fellowshipping. Hey, we were hanging out with other people from my church. That's fellowshipping. As a matter of fact, I've heard people in this church, and this is not to call anybody out, but I've heard people in this church, when they're praying over a meal, they're like, Lord, thank you so much that we get to fellowship today. And, okay, I love sincere prayers, so I'm not docking you on that, right? But the word koinonia does not have a direct translation in the English language. It doesn't. But if I were to pick one word that is the closest to the word koinonia, it would be this, sharing. Sharing. Now, how do we know this? And by the way, I'm not the only one that thinks this. There's a lot of scholars who think this too. So if you're wondering... Where do they arrive at this conclusion that the word koinonia means sharing? Well, the very next verse, you know how we just listed four things from verse uh, you know, 42? In the very following verses, uh, Luke, he tells us what the word means. So let's take a look at the next one. Verse 44, all the believers were, get, were together, so they're all hanging out together, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay. You see this word common? Guess what that word is in the Greek? Next slide. Koino. That's the root word for koinonia. They're like, hey, people started like selling their stuff. They brought the money and they were sharing with the people around them and they called that koinonia. Okay, so some of you are like, that is so cool. Like, you mean the first church was a church that was just sharing their stuff with each other and that's called fellowshipping? Now, that's cool. That's how you're feeling. But some of you are thinking, are you sure this isn't a cult? Because I, maybe your concern is this. Next slide. If I join this church, does it mean that my stuff is no longer my stuff? And that's a legitimate question. If, if you're wondering, like, I just got a new car. 
I'm not going to let the people in my church drive it. I totally get it, okay? And so let me explain to you what this, the implications of this is, okay? Let's just say you bought a laptop, a brand new one, because your old one's running slow. And as you're using it, you're like, hey, this is a pretty cool laptop. It's twice as fast as my old one. Oh, this is awesome. I'm going to transfer all my files and put it in here. And after like a month, you realize that your old laptop is starting to collect dust. But it still works, right? Koinonia is when you take that old laptop that you're no longer using, you don't have use for it anymore, and you find out that there's somebody in your church that, well, quite frankly, you're like, school starts in a few months or a few weeks, and my son does not have a computer because, well, you know, I just got laid off. And I don't know what to do. Koinonia is to say, well, I have a laptop that I'm not using. It's still operational. It's not as fast, but you can have it. Or let's just say you have two TVs because you just got the new LED, OLED TV, you know, right, right, whatever technology. I love technology, but okay, you don't have to. But anyways, you're looking at it, it's like, this is amazing. What do I do with my old TV? If there's somebody in your church or somebody in your community that needs a TV, say, hey, you can have it for free. That's koinonia in. Okay, so I want you to get an, like a car. You just bought a new car, you have an old car, and you don't want to sell it because it's just too much hassle. And we find out that somebody in your church just got a job, but has no way of getting there because they don't have a car. You can have my old car. I have no use for it. It's just sitting in my garage. You can have it. Or if your old car is broken, you could say, hold up. I'm going to go sell this car. And with the money, I'm going to give it to the people who need it in my church. That's koinonia-ing. Koinonia-ing. Okay, you get what I'm talking about. So, a working definition that I think we could all agree on here is this, koinonia, prayerfully, and we'll talk about this, prayerfully and voluntarily sharing our extra resources with our community. That is koinonia. And when Luke looked at the church, the first church service, he's like, I see the music, I see, I see all this stuff happening, but the thing that really stands out to me, not to say it's the most important thing, but he thinks this is the glue that keeps everything together, is koinonia. Now, if we were to compare this to the way that we define the word fellowship, right? If you're like, oh yeah, uh, went to a coffee shop, we drink some coffee, we were fellowshipping. Don't you think this is so much more powerful, right? This is koinonia, and this is what Luke saw, and he was like, I gotta write this down, right? And later on in the book of Acts, you'll see examples of a group of people who are like, I have my own home property, but I also have their property somewhere else, like, I don't know, a beach home or something, right? And while I enjoy going there twice a year, I really don't need it. So I'm going to sell that property, take the money, because I know that there's a bunch of widows at my church. This is in, in the book of Acts. That, that, and back then, widows had no power. They had no money. They, they, they couldn't get a job unless they became prostitutes. It was so bad. So the church decided to get together and say, I'm willing to sell my other property so that these people are taken care of. They were koinoniaing. Now, here's the big difference between a cult and what we see here, Okay. In a cult, you have to give. You have to. Like, the, the pastor will go to you and say, I see that you have two properties. Go sell one and give to the poor. That's a cult. Don't do that. By the way, if anybody in this church, including the pastors, especially the pastors, say to you, hey, I see that you're doing, uh, you have these things. Go sell it and give it to somebody else. Do not listen to us and leave this church immediately because then we are a cult. Okay, we don't tell you what to do. It's between you and God. Okay, and if you ever feel like they were trying to manipulate you to do something, leave the church right away. You have my permission to leave right away. Okay, because the difference between a cult and a church is that in a cult, you have to give. In a church, you get to give. 
people are motivated from the inside. They're like, I just want to give. And so Luke had a big question, which you might also have. And if you do, then that's good because this is the very question that Luke is trying to answer, which is this. What motivated them to be so generous? Where did their motivation come from? If it wasn't coercion, where did it come from? Because some of you are like, hey, that first century church did a great job, but I don't know if I could do it. Maybe if the pastor forced me to, it's like, but that'll be wrong. So how did they get this motivation to do it? And Luke had the exact same question. And so he's trying to figure it out. He's an investigator. And he's thinking like, okay, if it happens again, I'm going to do a little more deeper digging and see what's really there. So he's waiting for the coin to happen again. And then it happens two chapters later, Luke chapter four. And he's like, great, this time I'm going to find out what the motivation is. Let's look at chapter four. With great power, the apostles, that's the church leaders, continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the apostles' teachings that we talked about, right? And God's grace was so, and we'll come back to that, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that the, in them, wait, I'm sorry. I'm so close to the screen, I can't read the whole thing at once. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy person among them. Okay, so we see that Koinonia is happening right here, right? Everybody has their needs met because they're all working together. Next verse. For from time to time, that means it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while it will happen. From time to time, those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the, the sales and put it at the apostles' feet because apostles are the ones who knew who had need. So let's just say I just sold a home. I have all this money. Who's in need, apostle? And they'll be like, well, there's some widows over there. There's some orphans over there. There's some people who can't get a job over there. And so the apostles were the ones who directed them. These are the people who are in need. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Okay, so the question again is, what led them to have the motivation to be so generous? If we go back to the first paragraph, so next slide. It says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the apostles' teaching. That was the first thing on the list of four, right? And then, next slide, it says down here, there were no needy persons among them. That's fellowship. That's koinonia, right? So we have the first one and we have the second one. And in between gives you the motivation. Next slide. God's grace. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. That is the motivation. So what does that mean? Okay. Because I had the same question, like, what does it mean to have God's grace that motivates you to do these things? So I asked my professor when I was in seminary, when I was in school, and this is what he said. He said, Cuts, there's a whole progression of things that happen when God puts his grace on you. Okay, so this is how he broke it down. I'm going to break it down for you also. But the way that he interpreted this verse is this. He says, grace happened. It's like a drive-by grace, you know, right? Or the way that he put it was, you got graced, right? Like, you'll know when you got graced. Like, like he, he basically said, Cuts, let me explain it to you so that you understand because I wasn't that bright of a student, right? He says, grace usually leads to generosity because of this. Next slide. So he says this, God has poured out grace on me. So for you, we, we all have different stories, but once you get to know Jesus, we all discover something about him. Like, like for me, I would say, wow, you know, before I felt like I didn't have a purpose in life, but now he gave me purpose. For you, the story might be God has given me life. For others of you, God has given me a community. God has given me worth. Like, you know, I didn't think I was worth much, but to know that Jesus died for me, now I have like the sense of worth. Like God gave me worth, right? You can't put a price on that. God gave me meaning. God gave me freedom. God gave me 
um, a way out of my bad habits. He's given me new life, given me a second chance, whatever it is. You fill in the blank. Everybody's a little different in this part, right? But because of that, next slide, I feel like I'm indebted to God. God, how can I thank you? Oh, you know, I'm going to sing some songs. And that's what worship is. We respond to God's goodness for it, right? God, thank you so much for all that you've done for me. How can I repay you? I, I can't live my life without knowing that, that this is a mutual thing. You've given me so much. I want to be able to give something back to you. And God says, guess what, God? I already have everything I need. I don't need anything from you. But there is this one commandment that I want everybody to follow. So if you want to pay me back, I want you to do this one commandment. And what's that? The third thing right here. Love one another as Christ, as Christ has loved you. Whatever God has done for you, now I want you to do that for somebody else. I want to pay you back, God. What am I supposed to do? No, no, no. You don't have to pay me back because I already have everything. I'm God. So I want you to do whatever you want to do for me. I want you to do it to the people around you. And that is the very definition of koinonia. So let's look at the definition again. Koinonia, prayerfully and voluntarily. Prayerfully, because when you pray, it's between you and God. No church leader is going to tell you what to give up. And if that happens to you anywhere, run, right? Because we're not a cult, okay? But prayerfully, it's between you and God. No one else is going to coerce you to tell you what you should give up or if you should give up, give up anything, right? Prayerfully, and voluntarily, it is your, ultimately, it is your choice. Prayerfully and vo voluntarily sharing our extra resources with our community. That's what it comes down to. Now, do we see this happen anywhere in the Bible? The answer is yes. We see examples of this happening to big communities of people. If you want to learn about that, go to 2 Corinthians. But if you also want to see something like this happen on the individual example, an individual, like this is happening like to this one person, we have a perfect example for you. And for the rest of the service, I'm just going to talk about this one person. There's a book in the Bible called the book of Philemon. There's only one chapter, so it's a short book. If you want to read it for yourself, you can. It's, you can finish it within an hour if you're a slow reader. If you're a quick reader, like two minutes, right, really fast. But let me set up the scene for you before we go into the verse. There's a guy named Philemon. He's a Christian. He follows Jesus. Okay. He's also a person who has a lot of money. And he's also a slave owner. Now, before you go crazy about the fact that there's a slave owner in the Bible that's considered a hero, let me clarify by first saying that slavery in the Bible is different than what we understand slavery to be today. Slavery in the Bible is basically when you borrow money from somebody and you're like, hey, I just need to borrow some money because I'm going to start a business or something, right? And you're like, I promise you, I'll pay you back. And then you start doing your thing and then you realize, oh my goodness, I don't have money to pay him back. Philemon, I'm so sorry. I said I will pay you back, but... I, but I, and finally, it's like, I need that money. I need it. And so, so what does this person do? This slave says, well, this person says, I will work for you until my debt is paid off. That's what slavery was in the first century in this culture. So Philemon is the master, and he has a slave by the name of Onesimus. You don't have to know the name. You're not going to be tested. Okay, but there's a guy named Onesimus who is a slave of Philemon. Onesimus is indebted to Philemon. And so he's like, sure. Uh, Philemon or master, I will be your slave until I pay this whole thing off. But what happens is after a while, he's like, I can't live like this anymore. And so he runs away. He's a runaway slave. And he's running away. He bumps into the third character of the story, which is Paul the apostle. He's one of the first Christian leaders. And as he bumps into Paul, Paul basically says, hey, I know who you are. You're, you're, you're Onesimus. You're, you're Philemon's slave. And he's like, please don't tell my master that I ran away because I don't want to go back. And so Paul's like, 
you know, let's grab some coffee, let's sit down, let's have a talk. And, and through that talk, they get to know each other, and eventually, Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus. And he's like, oh, yes, I get to participate in the, re in the redemption of the world. This is so cool. Okay, Paul, what do I do? And Paul's like, well, the first thing you have to do is you need to go back to Philemon. It's like, but Philemon's going to be so angry. He's like, I know Philemon. He's my, he's my bro. You know, like, I, he's my friend. I'm going to write him a letter so that when he reads it and you go back and you take the letter and give it to him, he'll welcome you back with open arms. We have that letter in the New Testament called the book of Philemon. We're going to be looking at verse 15. Okay, so you guys got the backdrop, the story? All right, here we go. Verse 15. Perhaps, this is Paul writing to Philemon, perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, perhaps the reason why he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. He's like, hey, maybe the whole reason why he ran away, maybe it was God's plan all along. You know, you ran away and now he got to know who Jesus is. So maybe that was the plan all along. We don't know how God works, but maybe that's what was happening, right? Now he's, when he comes back to you, he's no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother, look, when he's coming back to you, he's coming back as one of us. Isn't that great? I'm like, yay. Right? And he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. He's like, look, you had a slave. He ran away. He came back as one of us. This is great, right? Now, what is Philemon thinking at this moment? It's like, yeah, praise the Lord. This is great, but you know he still owes me money. <laughs> like, becoming a Christian doesn't clear out your debt to somebody else it doesn't so like yeah but um yeah sure i'll stop calling him a slave but i still need my money back right next verse so if you consider me a partner paul's like you know we're good friends right welcome him as you will welcome me when i come by your house you're like oh paul welcome here here have a seat um, let me cook you dinner right when you welcome onesimus back make sure you do the same for him but but he owes me money listen to what paul says next if he has done you any wrong which he has, or owes you anything, which he does, charge it to me. Now, quick cultural context here. Back in those days, people who, um, like Paul, who, are, who sent letters, um, he has some physical ailments. So people think that his hand was so shaky that he couldn't write that well. He hired a, like a, a scribe. He has somebody write his letters for him. He will dictate it, and the guy is like writing it down. Paul, slow down. You're talking too fast. He'll write it down. And so up to here was written by that scribe. And so, you know, just imagine for Philemon, you had your slave run away. He comes back with a letter written by somebody else's handwriting. You're like, this can't be Paul. Good one, Onesimus. I, you almost had me there. And so Paul knew that was going to happen. So the next verse, he says this. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. You're like, this one section, look, here's my shaky handwriting. This is me, Paul, writing this. And in case you missed it, I will pay it back. Now, there's some interesting implications that are happening here. Paul doesn't know what the debt is. Let's just say, Paul, we don't know how much. Let's, to keep it simple, let's just say it's like 100 bucks, right? Or you can say a million, I don't know, but let's just say 100 bucks. And Paul's like, I have 100 bucks. Whatever he owes you, I'll pay it back. And Onesimus says, I mean, Philemon says, yeah, he owes me like $500. Paul just said in writing that I will pay every penny back. So now, when Paul realizes that he can't pay him back, who is the new slave? Paul. Paul is a new slave. Paul is saying, I will take his place. If, he can't, if I can't pay you back for his debt, I will become your slave. Now, why is Paul so generous here? This is the same question that Luke had. What motivated these people to have so much generosity in their hearts? 
Now, you know how when we write letters, we sign our name at the very, uh, every, the very bottom? Sincerely yours, Kotz. You know, that's right. In those days, they started their letter with their name. So let's take a look at that because there's a big clue there about why Paul is doing this. This is verse 1. He starts off by saying, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When it says prisoner of Christ Jesus, this is what he means. I've been graced. I owe God so much that I feel like I'm a prisoner. I, I, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to pay God back for the things that he has done for me. This is what it means. When he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, what he's saying is, God has done something so amazing for me that I could never pay him back. And so one way I'm going to pay him back is by freeing Onesimus from being a slave. His source of grace came from being graced by God. In other words, behind Paul's generosity was God's grace. When you are graced by God, everything changes. Everything changes. Next verse, uh, next slide. So here are the four things that Luke recognized. He said, look, these four things are the four things that I recognized in the first church. And this is like groundbreaking for him. And it's, it should be groundbreaking for us too. But what scholars notice about these four things is that these four things aren't just four random things in four random order, in random order. What he discovered is that what we discovered is that these four things is actually a progression. So we learn in the apostle teaching, we learn about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is how much God has given us. We've been graced by God. And because of that, I have to give back to others. I can't give back to God, so I'm going to give back to the people around me. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. And because I'm doing that, you know, so if I share with my fellow brother or sister in Christ around me, and that person over there is, you know, of a different race, that person is a different social status, that person's a Roman guard, this person is a Jew, this person's a Gentile. As I start sharing my resources with the people around me, we discover that we have everything in common. And because of that, we're able to break bread we're able to have this fellowship, this, this gathering around the table, sharing the most intimate part of our lives with the people around us. And because they're breaking bread, and they all want the same thing, when they pray, they're praying the same thing. They're all praying for his kingdom to come here on earth as they experienced it also. So the question I have for you guys, by the way, isn't this such much richer and deeper version of fellowship than what we're used to hearing about? right? And we could be this. But it all starts with the individual. How have you been graced by God? And maybe a better question here is, how have you fellowshiped lately? Have you been living only for yourself? Have you considered the needs of the people around you? When you look around your house, do you see things that are just collecting dust? And you keep saying, no, I need it, I need it, I need it. But really, really, do you really need it? Again, I'm not going to tell you what to give up because this is not a cult, okay? Right? Is this one of those things where the more I say I'm not a cult, then the more suspicious I sound? Okay, so I'm going to stop saying that. Sorry. <laughs> okay, but the point is I'm trying to protect you guys. Okay, like if you're ever in a situation where people tell you to give something, then don't. Okay. Between you and God, because in this mindset, okay, is this. If God has given us so much that we could barely repay him, that means all of me, everything I own, belongs to God. So now it's up to between you and God to decide do you want me to give this much of my stuff away for that person or to this organization? Like, what do you want me to do? And it doesn't have to be monetary things. It doesn't have to be physical things. It could be time. You know, in my schedule, I have like a whole hour that I'm not doing anything. God, how do you want me to use that hour? Maybe you guys retired recently and you're like, I have so much time on my hands. What do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do with my free time now? So there's this whole understanding 
of, because I've been graced by God, I need to give back to the community around me. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Did I go too long? I hope not. Let's pray. <laughs> let's pray.